0: My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for courageous conversations about subjects that touch our hearts, yet feel risky to share. Today is our first show on Mondays at 1. This will be the new time for Safe Space going forward. Today is the third show in our series on the Somali community in Maine. Last week, I interviewed Maria Padian on her book, Out of Nowhere, about Somali high school students and the challenges of integrating into the public school system. Next week I'll be interviewing Fatuma Hussein about her work to empower Somali women and girls in Maine. But today I will be speaking to Hussein Ahmed about Somalis in the workplace. Former Lewiston Mayor Larry Raymond and current Lewiston Mayor Bob McDonald have sometimes suggested that Somali residents are taxing social services, when in fact, large numbers of Somali immigrants are employed and even supporting the economy by creating new jobs. Hussein Ahmed is the father of six children, a U.S. citizen from Somalia. He came to the United States in 2001. Hussein has a double bachelor's degree from the University of Southern Maine in leadership and organizational studies and in social and behavioral science. Hussein is a business owner and community volunteer. He serves on the board of Tree Street Youth, an organization helping vulnerable children with after school programs involving academics, art, and social work. Hussein Ahmed is also a member of the Future Forum of Maine, a group dedicated to making Lewiston-Auburn a place where one can live, work, raise a family, and play together. Welcome to Safe Space, Hussein. I'd like to start by hearing from you a little bit of your story uh, from before you came to Lewiston. What was the reason that your family had to leave your home?
1: Well, um, as you may know, I'm a descent from Somalia. And late 90s, Somalia was engulfed in civil war. And it was a devastating civil war. And many people, including my own family, had no choice but to leave Somalia and seek refuge in the neighboring countries. My family specifically came to Kenya. And we spent many, many years in a refugee camp in Kenya.
0: How long were you in Kenya?
1: I was in Kenya for 10 years.
0: So uh, a very long time, and were you living in very makeshift housing at that point? How was the quality of life in the camps? How would you describe what it was like there?
1: Uh, I'm sure it's hard for many of us to imagine what is it like to live in a refugee camp. But that was uh, an experience that's had to to share sometimes there's no housing i mean you build your own your own houses from trees some of us will built some from mad but it has been it has been a very tough tough story and living in the camp has not been easy it's been very tough and you had to make your own shelter there's no uh, durable shelter you make uh, houses from brushes and from trees and from all sorts of just to secure your own life from you know the cold.
0: All this time I'd imagined, I think I'd been picturing images of kind of United Nations refugee camps with either tents or makeshift housing that they provided. I didn't realize that you were so on your own. Yeah. Uh, was, were you hungry you know, all
1: there? Of they, what they give you is plastic sheets and some boxes. And you have to be resourceful or skillful to at least draw something out of what they give. They tried their best. I really applaud the services that the UNHCR and the refugee, other refugee agencies provided to those refugees who are in need. It certainly was better than living in the, the civil war where there had been an excessive amount of weapons being used and the only hope was just to escape. And that was a relief, believe it or not, for many, many of us. And there for quite some time. And many other refugees, unfortunately, still do live in those refugee camps. And you know, my heart still goes to them, and I and I feel sorry as a matter of fact, my own father lives down there with other siblings of mine.
0: Your own father is still in a refugee camp in Kenya. Yes. Do you have a way to communicate with him?
1: Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, I do communicate with him, I do support him, you know, I'm fortunate enough I'm here and I'm engaged in employment and at least I can support him. But I feel so sad for the many, many other individuals who do not get similar help as my father and who still do spend their life in the refugee camp.
0: When it came time for your family to be able to come to the United States, did you get much advance notice or was it very sudden?
1: It hasn't been sudden. Uh, I came on a uh, family reunification case. So someone petitioned for me. Yeah.
0: You had someone that was already here.
1: Yes. So I came on a family reunification case. Those cases have reduced drastically recently. And resettlement to the United States has also become very hard after the 9 11 event, which was a uh, very tragic event that affected many families here in the U.S., and it's also affected many, many refugees who are in the refugee camp who had the hope of coming to this country.
0: I see. So since that time, since 9-11, the number of Somali refugees that have been able to come to the United States has come has been reduced drastically.
1: It has drastically reduced, for sure. I mean, family reunification cases have been closed, literally closed, and has not been reopened since then. Uh, before 9-11... An individual could petition for their own brothers or sisters over in the camp. That's not happening anymore. You could petition for your parents, but that process will take many, many years. I brought over my mother, and it took over five years to bring her here. So that, that's a very long process and a very you know, tough and scrutinized process, and everything became very tough. I mean, it is a very necessary process but it takes really quite some time.
0: So your parents are separated and your father has not been able to come since since 2001.
1: Yes, my father has not been able to come over.
0: Mm. I understand you now have six children, so he hasn't been able to see his grandchildren.
1: Uh, he has not seen his grandchildren. Yeah, That's very tragic. I was able to travel to to Kenya to see him uh May last year. So it, that was an opportunity to see him after I lived in this um, in this country for over 10 years. So that was also, the, I mean, the closest uh, that we were communicating, but it took very, very many years for us to get back together, and he has not seen his grandchildren.
0: Oh. So I want to ask you a little bit about what happened when you came. I understand you first came to Georgia and only ended up coming to Lewiston because a friend asked you to t- to drive with him. Is that right?
1: Yes, I mean, my story of coming to Lewiston has been has been very different compared to many, many other families. And a very interesting one, because a friend asked me, I was unemployed in Georgia uh, for about five months. So a friend asked me if I could help him driving to Lewiston, Maine. And he said, well, I need help, so definitely we are the, community that help each other we you know we are like extended family and we give hand to each other so i said okay i'm unemployed now i was looking for employment so let me drive you Uh, it takes me a couple of days and i'll have to come back to georgia we drove we came over to uh, lewiston maine he had his family here he came here before me he looked at place he had a house so he go get his stuff and i helped him come over I came here and I met another friend who we were in the refugee camps together. And he said, oh, you came to Maine? And I said, oh, something friend. And he said he was here, he was working. Uh, I asked him about employment opportunities here. And he said, well, I work at Lifebridge just across the, the bridge down here. And then he was living at Park Street, which is very a walking distance from where he was working. Then I said, oh, can I maybe try for an employment for, for a job down there? And he said yes. Come on over. Oh. I applied. Two days later, I got a job offer. <laughs> so I was unemployed in Georgia for a while, and I said, "Well, I'll really take the job." And it wasn't a bad job. Uh, I met some friends. It certainly was tough. You know, English wasn't my first language. At the same time, I had a heavy accent, so it was a challenging for me. But nonetheless, you know, the best opportunity.
0: So you've been in Georgia for five months. You hadn't been able to find work. You get to Maine and you find a job within two days.
1: Yes. We have a state which we say has perhaps maybe one of the highest unemployment. But I was able to secure employment in a couple of days staying here. And I said, "Wow, you know, this may be the best place <laughs> for me. And it's interesting. Many people are struggling, but I was able to secure employment very quickly. You know that was a good life.
0: so let me ask you about that first job. I know you've had other jobs since, but in that first job, it was a call center, right? so you were talking on the phone, and as you mentioned, English was not your first language what was How was that for you to be speaking English on the phone when you were still in some ways still so new here how What were the challenges of that?
1: It's all tough you know still my english was uh, I had uh, an English that was up there for. I I'm mean improvement, and the company, as a matter of fact, gave me the opportunity, and they took the risk with me. I had the quality of trying to give service, and I was passionate about my job. So, this was an impound call center where individuals will call in to activate um, their credit cards. You know, when they call in because of my accent, others will ask you, "Well, are you in India? You know, <laughs> where are you from?" and It was tough. Some will feel very uncomfortable with me and hang the phone on me. Others will, you know, ask me several questions, you know, about my background. And we will not be allowed to share similar information on the phone. But, you know, many individuals were curious to know where I was from based on definitely my accent and the way I was pronouncing uh, the English words which we were reading from the screen then. So it has been tough. I was able to hang in there. Uh, And I found another job later.
0: So I understand you then went to the Lewiston-Auburn Collaborative and that you worked as an employment case manager helping other immigrants to find jobs.
1: I worked as an employment uh, case manager trying to help my fellow Somali refugees find and secure uh, employment. It's been uh, a very challenging job, both for myself and my fellow Somalis who I was trying to help. The job involved reaching out to employers, reaching out to service providers, and trying to match the skills of my fellow Somalis with what employers are looking for. So most of the time involved breaking barriers, you know, uh, trying to explain the skill sets of my clients and trying to, to match that with the employer expectation. Also in the process was trying to help employers understand the cultural difference. Others will be kind of uh, unwilling to hire a Somali female who has the big hijab.
0: Why don't you explain what a hijab is?
1: Hijab is the big dressing that covers uh, the female body that you see. If you walk uh, around in and you'll see a big cloth worn by the Somali females, and this is a traditional cloth that helps cover the female body. So it's uh, a cultural requirement. We all have cultural requirement in terms of dress code culturally. Like males do have cultural requirement. Uh, we can't wear like short clothes. We can't wear like the uh, t-shirts that are, you know, cut on the shoulders uh, publicly. So there are some restrictions, both when it comes to the female and also the male. So part of the female clothes involve covering their bodies, and that's what the hijab is. So some employers out of uh, safety uh, concerns had issues about uh, hiring Somali females who were wear such a big cloth. And part of my job was to address similar concerns. And you find when we have the discussion, the end of the story was a very happy one because we could explain to many employers and many employers did change. Some of the employers we did help work with closely was LLD. And LLD has hired quite a number of Somali females, and they've been very successful. Some of them still do work there today. And, you know, it's a good story to share. When employers out there test and break that barrier of trying not to hire Somali females because of the hijab, they are limiting their workforce. And when we explained this, we were able to overcome barriers. And, really, LLBN stands out to be one of the best companies that have hired many Somalis, and Somalis have been successful working down
0: there. It's wonderful to hear that El avine is such an emblem of Maine. It's great mm. to hear that they've been so uh, involved in this.
1: There are many many other companies who were involved who hired Somali females and uh, also Somali males and you know some who had very limited English and who came out to be very successful in the workplace.
0: I want to ask you now about your own work because I understand you then went on to open your own store with some partners and I'd love to hear about what made that possible for you to become an entrepreneur so so quickly upon arriving in Lewiston.
1: I was able to start a small business down here in Lewiston. I mean, there are many challenges in terms of trying to operate business here in Maine and specifically for individuals like me or Muslim individuals, one of the biggest problem or challenge out there is accessing loan services because of cultural restriction of when it comes to interest. I was able with other partners uh, to start a store down here and we sell some stuff. I mean, we sell food stuff. We sell clothes stuff. We sell interesting spices and it will be good coming over to try some of our products. And I started in 2000. 2000- Number. Um, we did not have a huge capital but certainly I was able to hang in there. I ended up being the final person who remained and you know the other partner pulled out. Certainly the business wasn't doing great and it was not uh, something that can sustain two individuals. And the other partner left and I became the sole operator and I'm still able to operate my business. The profit margin is not huge, you know, it's tough if I can pay my bills and support my family. I'm very happy and I'm able to do it.
0: So let's talk a little bit about what is your business. What do you do?
1: From where I am, I have uh, multiple uh, businesses that I run. Oh. I run a store, yes. and the store, you know, sells food, we sell clothing, we sell uh, bedding stuff, we sell meat, a very uh, big product uh, to our customers. Within the store, we also have many remittance services. Uh, We do operate as bill payment center, and I also rent. I have a couple of units which I rent, so I'm a landlord also on the side. So it's a couple of things that I run from my location down here.
0: It's amazing to hear all the different things that you're doing. So I wasn't totally sure I understood everything you said earlier about the loan. You said that loan, accessing a loan is a challenge. And what was it that you, what was your secret to obtaining a loan? I mean, how did that actually work? What, what do you, what, if you were advising someone else, what would you say? Uh,
1: by then, we were only able to raise capital from the saving that I and my other friend had.
0: Oh, so we I see. had to,
1: come, you know, from our own savings, we did not access any loans. And by then, 2004, the Somalis were just very new to Lewiston, and there were literally no banks that even were aware of the cultural restrictions we had in terms of uh, paying or earning interest. So that discussion was not even part of the uh, table. I know we were able to address that down the road. Uh, CEI currently is involved helping many families access loans that Sharia compliance, in other words.
0: And what what makes a loan Sharia compliant? What what are the cultural restrictions on paying back interest?
1: Um, it, it's tough. I mean, um, explaining its, uh, its interest itself along with a very long discussion, and it's a very tough, tough topic. But uh, to be brief, um, Earning money on top of money is one of the um, restricted practices in the Islamic culture. So you cannot lend money to someone and say, well, I'm going to trade you interest because I get you a lot. It has to be structured differently for it to become uh, Sharia compliant. And it's a very long process, and CEI was able to structure something similarly and become very helpful to many, many business owners, and also lately to my to myself when I became a property owner. So it's something people are uh, looking into it. Some banks are trying to study it uh, locally down here. But I think it's one of the things that's limited uh, many Somalis from, an example, owning homes, because there, there has not been uh, banks that are willing to structure loans in a such a way and give access of housing to many Somalis who will have been a home or a property owner right here in Louisville.
0: So clearly the system of loans and interest rates is something that uh, has to get improved, has to get worked on. Are there other barriers that really limit the way that Somalis can be successful with starting their own businesses that you would like uh, to see changed?
1: Yeah. The other thing that restricts many is the type of product we can engage in, like selling alcohol, selling cigarettes. Those are very restricted uh, business. So when you look at it from that point, we also have very limited in what we can engage in in terms of uh, running a business. Like I cannot operate a liquor store. I cannot work in a store where they sell or... Uh, you know, handle uh, liquor or beer. So there are similar restrictions, and that's why you will see several individuals do own uh, stores that are more or less similar. You know, you'll find my store products more or less close, you not know, the same as the next door store and the next door store, and all of us, you know, it's a very tough market out there. We try to compete for the same customers. I
0: see. But
1: we are limited on what we can sell. So there's no choice, but we only try to share the resources that's available and also sell to what is available for us customers.
0: And do you sell products to mostly Somalis, or do you would you say that your clientele are also traditional Lewiston residents as well?
1: Given the service that I provide here, I have a, a mixed up of, customers. Uh, I do see Lewiston residents come to my place. Especially what benefits me most is I'm right here in downtown and we have some residences around downtown so they come over uh, to buy some stuff. So I'll say I have mixed the majority of Somalis but I'm trying to reach out to my other uh, fellow Lewiston uh, residents and I do that every single day. You know, part of the myth out there is some individual thing. The stores down here are only for formalists. when it's not the case. You know, and I try to do my best to reach out. You know, we offer services like a bill payment center, which is very common, and very common with other residents uh, with non-Somalis, as a matter of fact. They access those services. I certainly will be very happy to improve on selling the products that I have to non-Somalis, and I'm trying doing that. And it's gradual, but it's still growing.
0: So what I hear you saying is that you're making gradual inroads into becoming a store that services the whole population of Lewiston-Auburn, regardless. Yes, and that that's a gradual process. It's a
1: gradual, slow process, but it's happening. You know, it's one of the major things that I'm trying to do. I'm involved with this community, and I reach out a lot.
0: So, Hussein Ahmad, we are going to have to say goodbye, but before we do that, I want to ask, what is the name of your store and what is the address so that if people want to visit you there, they can?
1: Global Halal Market at 267 Lisbon Street in Lewiston, Maine.
0: Global Halal Market at 267 Lisbon Street in Lewiston. In
1: Lewiston.
0: Great. And halal, just tell us, what does halal mean?
1: Halal means... Uh, food or products that meets the Islamic standard of slaughtering. it halal mostly applies to products like the meat, and uh-huh. the meat, it has to be slaughtered in a certain manner for it to meet the halal uh, requirement. In other words, it's kosher, yes. product that does not have uh, pork or pork, pork products within uh, its content. So pork, I cannot sell pork. If uh, part of the food items on my shelf contains pork or pork product, then it's not halal. It's not acceptable Islamic, Islamically. So that's what it means.
0: Thank you for explaining. Hussein Ahmed at Global Halal at one tw- is 127 Lisbon Street. Am I remembering that? Right? 267, 267. 267 Lisbon Street in Lewiston. <laughs> Thank you so much for being my guest. I wish you every success.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, I wish we could cover some more topics, but I'm sure there's time restraint. So thank you for having me, and uh, thanks to the rest of the individuals who listen to this show.
0: You're very welcome. My thanks today to Jen Hodson for mixing the sound, Maurice Lennon for the music. If you'd like to listen to the show in its entirety or email the link to a friend, please go to the website at www.safespaceradio.com. You can also sign up there to get a weekly email with a link to that week's topic. Coming up next week is an interview with Fatuma Hussein on empowering Somali girls and women here in Maine. And coming up immediately is Speak Freely.